Welcome to the Camry Sass podcast. I'm Will. And I'm Annie. And this is a really exciting episode because it's the very first of our live panel discussions. So this was recorded live in the Tom's store in London and we had four really interesting panellists who introduced themselves at the start of the episode. And a room full of interesting people asking questions. We do. And so the panel was audience-led as as ever. All our panel discussions are audience-led. We tried to foster an environment that means that there's no such thing as a stupid question and we got some really really interesting questions about the world of social entrepreneurship so we we discuss how do you measure impact as a social enterprise we discussed how we as both employees and consumers can make a change no matter how big or small we are and we also discussed what corporates can learn from social enterprises So there's loads of really interesting stuff coming up in this episode, so I really hope you enjoy it. If you do, please let us know. We're on social media at Can We Just Ask. We really do want to hear what your thoughts are. If you've got any follow-up questions, we will do our very best to share them with the panellists. So please get in touch. And if you really do like what you're hearing from the podcast, please do subscribe and leave us a review on whatever platform you're listening on. It makes a massive difference to us continuing. And if you want to be part of one of the conversations that we record live for the rest of the series, we have three more coming up. So you can find all of the information on our website, canwejustask.co, and we'll leave all of the links in the show notes so that you can get involved too. All of the ticket sales are going to support The Mix, a charity that provides essential support for under 25s. So come along, have a good conversation and get involved with a good course. But for now, let's delve into the conversation. And this episode is entitled, Can Social Entrepreneurship Really Change the World? The only way you create change is by standing up and campaigning for those things you care for. If we hold ourselves individually to higher account, the world will be a better place. For me, communication is, is the key to absolutely everything. How can we all save the what world? it means to be a man or indeed a human. There's no such thing as a stupid question. The Can We Just Ask podcast starts conversations that matter. Good evening, everyone. If there's anyone left that wants to come and sit down, there's a few seats dotted around. My name's Annie, and this is Will, and together we are the founders of Can We Just Ask? And we're so happy to be here with you all this evening. This is the first event of our second season, and all of the events and some other conversations as well are going to be recorded as our first podcast series, and we are delighted to be doing so in partnership with Tom's, who are the very wonderful hosts this evening as well, having us here. So the title of the conversation is Can Social Entrepreneurship Really Change the World? We've got four uh, very interesting panellists, all from very different points of view, from grassroots uh, startups to big international companies and, and not-for-profits. So um, Instead of making a hash of introducing them, I'm going to get them to introduce themselves to you. And like we've said, we are going to come to you for questions. There's absolutely no pressure, but start thinking of them now. And there's no such thing as a stupid question. (laughs) So if you're thinking of a question, it probably means that somebody else is thinking it too, whether they're in the room or listening to this at home. So um, if we will start uh, at the yellow end, end, please introduce yourself. Who are you and what do you do? So I'm Nick, I'm a British guy living in Berlin, hashtag Brexit, Um, and uh, I'm I'm working for Ashoka, uh, which is the world's first and biggest network of social entrepreneurs, and our job is to give often slightly crazy people with powerful ideas to change the world everything they need to make their impact system changing. Uh, And as part of that role, I also co-founded and lead a a global community of young social entrepreneurs, people like Josh, who you're going to meet soon, um, called Changemaker Exchange. 
Thank you. My name's Lisa Hogg, and I'm the Senior Director for Marketing and Giving for Tom's for Europe, Middle East, and Africa. So I get the privilege to work with a team that obviously run the store, but then also partnering with people like Will and Annie Ashoka, who we, we love to work with. Um, and I'm responsible for how we show up from a marketing point of view, but then also in addition to that, where we actually spend our impact um, investments within the, the Europe, Middle East, and Africa region. And my name's Josh Babarendi. I run Cracked It, which is London's social enterprise smartphone repair service staffed by young ex-offenders and young people who are at risk of offending. And the key insight is that you know, last year, uh, youth violence rose in London by 16%. But at the same time, 29% of people have a smashed smartphone screen. Um, <laughs> in fact, somewhere... 22. 29. Yeah. Two very pressing issues. Um, <laughs> Nick's I'll give you a Nick is included in the 29%. And so we come in at the intersection uh, of those issues and support these young people to channel um, a lot of their very entrepreneurial skills um, into slightly more positive means to support them transition away from crime uh, and towards work. Good evening, everybody. Um, thank you to Annie, to Will, and the guys from Tom's for having us across here. I'm very happy to represent Patagonia. Uh, my name is Alex. I work for Patagonia. Uh, if anybody that doesn't know about Patagonia, then uh, simply put, uh, we're in business to save our home planet. Um, I support that mission by coordinating our wholesale activities across uh, the UK, Ireland, and the Nordic region, which means I get to go some absolutely amazing places. Um, and I also help and support our environmental mission through our 1% um, fund within the UK and Ireland and the Nordics too. Amazing. What a lineup. Yeah, great. Thank you. So uh, to, to kick it off, I guess, to, to get more of insight into what you see in your day-to-day -day and in the work that you do, uh, I, I appreciate uh, the challenges people face differ depending on where you are in the world and what community you live in and, and um, what, your, what, your, what mission you're trying to implement. But I wonder if we... A blanket question of... What do you think is the greatest challenge that social entrepreneurs face today in today's current climate? Uh, we can, does anyone want to start on that? Nick. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so at Ashoka, we've been supporting social entrepreneurs for about 35 years. And people like Jimmy Wales, the founder of Wikipedia, or Mohammed Yunus from the microfinance movement, people like Josh. And I would put the challenges, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be able to name one, but I would very quickly put three kind of groups of challenges that I see are the most pressing today. Um, the first one being personal challenges and that social entrepreneurs, many are so in love with what they're doing, they're actually on the verge of burnout and crashing. They're just too passionate about their work. Um, number two being impact challenges. So to find the right impact model in a world where the social problems that we're working on are so deeply rooted and so complex and so systemic, it's actually super hard to work out how exactly to approach and tackle these. Uh, and then finally, the obvious one, it's money. It's the, it's, the, it's the funding model. And social entrepreneurs, particularly when they're starting out, have super difficulties in funding themselves and in, particularly in finding flexible funding that allows them to actually cover their own salary, if you like, to, to pay themselves for what they do. So many of them are doing extra jobs on the side, etc., which mean they're unable to fully, fully focus on having an impact in the world. 
And I would agree with that. As a social entrepreneur who started out um, launching my social enterprise about three years ago, um, money was one of the most challenging things. You know, I don't have a bank of mum and dad uh, to back me up. Um, I came up with this you know, crazy idea that no one was obviously willing to fund um, when, I, when I first started. You know, I pitched to very many people. I said, I, I want to set up a phone repair company um, that supports people away from crime. Um, and people just said, oh, well, that's really nice. Why don't you come back when you're successful? Um, and uh, then we'll consider funding you. But of course, if everybody says that, um, you won't get anywhere. Mm. And you know, I was fortunate in a way. I managed to like, wangle a very low rent place in zone two in London. I was paying 50 quid a week. Wow. Um, wow. Yeah, how did you do that? <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's going to ask you how you did that. <laughs> it was extraordinary. Um, but it was, uh, you know, it wasn't the nicest place, as you might imagine. <laughs> um, and there was lots of balancing, as Nick discussed, of lots of different part-time work. I had to sell my soul um, doing some terrible things. Um, <laughs> So tempted to So I saw myself doing things like that, and it felt really awful. Um, but it was for the greater good, guys. Mm. I think that, that's the, the, the sort of non-glamorous side of it. I mean, with any startup, I suppose, social or not, social enterprise or not, there's, there's always the side where you, you need to raise that funding, and you, 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 whatever way you do it, you need to do it to sustain yourself. We've got to pay rent. We've got to pay bills. Those are the sorts of things we've got to do. Are there, are there, so I, I guess with Ashoka, you provide that sort of support, or do you just, is it a networking thing more than a, a financial thing? So there's a bit of that community element. I think so what many young social entrepreneurs in particular we feel are missing is a, is a tribe of similarly crazy people who are doing that uh, changing the world stuff that their parents don't understand and they're the black sheep of their friends and family, etc., um, so having that solidarity identity is one thing that we give. Um, and then we also give that, that, that financial support um, to help people navigate that tricky valley at the beginning of, uh, of, of not having funding. Um, and then the other thing that we think is, is, is really important is to cultivate a culture of collaboration um, between social entrepreneurs themselves. I think in the current sector as well, we're in a bit of a, a situation often of glorifying the kind of lone hero social entrepreneur, which can be at the expense of collective, collaborative impact. So we also encourage social entrepreneurs to think carefully about, you know, sometimes how they can let their model go, how they can be replicated, how they can, whereas with a classic business, you would be encouraging people to show what's, how you are unique and how you can protect your model, stop others entering the market. What we actually try and do is help to encourage people to think about how can their model be magnetic? How can other people copy it? How can the government take it and implement it, etc.? which is a bit of a kind of a reverse logic for some people. But this is one of the key tensions of social entrepreneurship. So social entrepreneurs need to make money. Hmm. And one of the reasons that businesses kind of hang on to lots of their ideas is because it allows them to monopolize customers. Hmm. Um, and social entrepreneurs need to do that to some extent. Otherwise, you don't get any cash. Like, yeah. We're not charities yeah. that solely rely on donations. So trying to strike the right balance between being collaborative and sharing your model for the purpose of greater impact, but also 
um, trying to protect your ideas somewhat so that you can sustain your work and the ideas that are coming from it is really, really difficult. Yeah, I think the having spoken to kind of groups of younger social impact entrepreneurs, what I found was really interesting was, so there's lots of hustle involved in being a social um, entrepreneur. But what I'd like to reinforce is Tom's has been around for 13 years. We are still hustling because we're still a smaller brand. Our business model is is different. Um, so in comparison to our competitors, um, we, we're still hustling because we're coming at it from a, a different point of view. And we're, we're a for-profit company. So it's incredibly important that we, we're able to, um, to deliver on that. But I think it was really good to talk to these um, entrepreneurs to realize that it's, it's not unusual to feel those tensions. Um, and it's not like it's a bad thing that it doesn't go away after time. I mean, our challenge, just to your point, is our USP 13 years ago was that we were one of the only or the original one-for-one company as far as the way the business model worked. There's been a massive proliferation. We're super happy about that because there should be more business for good out there. But we've lost our, our differentiator. We're not that different anymore. So we have to work harder to make ourselves relevant and to evolve. Um, so even as a older big brother social... <laughs> Um, impact entrepreneurship, we still face that. But I, I actually think that's just the way business is going to go um, more and more. But I think at least talking about those tensions, um, I think at least the experience I had was kind of inspiring to realize that we all we all face similar challenges when you are grounded in in purpose, but you still have to make revenue. So... I think that those the tension specifically between uh, making profit and having a mission or having an impact. Uh, Alex, to come to you and from a Patagonia point of view, because Patagonia sort of famously, I think it was in 2011, they had the "Don't Buy This Jacket" yep. campaign, which is, uh, if anyone didn't see that, there was they put this whole uh, full page ad out in the New York Times, I think it was, and, it, and yep. it literally had a picture of a Patagonia jacket and it said "Don't buy this jacket," which is contradictory to the to the idea of well we need to make profit to make it to to um fund the impact that we have but is how from your point of view do you balance that is it and is it more is one more important than the other um i think the interesting to go back to the advert a minute uh, there's a guy called uh, rick ridgeway um rick is our he's got a great job title it's uh, vp of public engagement uh, rick is an amazing storyteller he's been around since the early days and uh, rick tells a story about that advert so it, was, uh, it ran on Black Friday on 2016, and 2011, excuse me, you're right. And um, Rick tells this story when I first met him, which was uh, that ad didn't work uh, because our sales grew by 33%. So as a result, that normal marketing strategy would be that you keep going with that, right? Because it clearly it worked, you sold more stuff, but actually it did have the reverse effect. We wanted people to read the copy because the copy was all about how many litres of water went into, I think it was an R1 jacket, that was the product at that time, uh, but nobody did. But the interesting thing, there was four words as part of that copy, which were reduce, uh, reuse, repair, recycle. And that went on to form one way, and that's how we started it. But the idea around uh, that whole piece was if the message uh, doesn't work, then it doesn't make a difference if you made money, because actually it still failed because the message wasn't heard. So you need to, re- you need to revise it and repeat it. And in a way, that's um, that's part of the company that I work for if it's if it's not right you have to you have to change and never be afraid to 
do what most people would think would be a daft thing. And if that means reverse it, dropping things, uh, then we'll do it. Because it's got, to be, it's got to be in support of that overall mission, which sometimes feels a long, 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 long way away. I mean, we're in business to save, save our home planet, right? I mean, gosh, that's huge. How do you grab that down to something that is completely tangible? And I think the only way, our, uh, and my experience with uh, social entrepreneurs is, is a, a different angle um, to these guys. It's, um, generally speaking, it is only people that are campaigning uh, to stop things happening in their backyard. Everything from uh, dams, coal-fired uh, power stations, fracking, um, various different uh, pressure groups, that's the only way that we believe that you, can, that you can create change. But the challenge, and Lisa's completely right, is that these things are so easily, so easily taken by uh, large companies and so easily pulled into their business model one way or another and then used as a point of difference or used as we feel it's re very, very important. And I'm looking at the age group within the audience and I'm comparing that to my age group and I'm looking thinking, well, actually, we need to be able to communicate to you guys. We want, and you guys are saying, actually, we need companies to stand up for something and we need groups to stand up for something. You have to have a purpose. You have to have a mission. You have to be doing it for good. You can't be doing it for money. So those people that have set up companies that are all about money, gosh, they're having to pivot really quickly, <laughs> really quickly. But it's really, really hard to reverse back into saying our business is for this mission because actually it's very clear that it wasn't. It's very clear the mission. Not naming any names. And there's no, there's no good or bad thing around that, right? Because it's, it's, it's the way the world changes. Mm. And it, um, it, it, it needs to, because otherwise we are, we're all completely screwed. Mm -hmm. It has to change, no two ways about it. Maybe it'd be a good time to um, come into the audience. Has anybody got any questions? Don't be shy. Oh yeah, we have yeah. one yes. back there. I was just interested um, in learning a little bit about what you think businesses in the traditional sense have to learn from social entrepreneurship. Excellent question. I mean, I mean, I can, Lisa, I can take it because um, <laughs> I think we're we're just the the combination, especially after thirteen years in, where we we still have very much a culture of social entrepreneurship, but we have to run a, as a business. Um, I think the it's Alex's point. I think um, removing ego from how you perform as a company in the way of really learning from on, from how you behave and, and what works and what doesn't work. Um, I think from social entrepreneurship, the other thing is that it's actually, for me, it'll become a hygiene factor that you have to have some sort of purpose angle to your business. But if you look at social entrepreneurs, they're so personally passionate about a topic. So then for businesses to actually look at what their core DNA is as a brand. What do they really deliver? And then how can they do the purpose angle in the same? Because what you see is a lot of examples out there that are quite gratuitous. Um, it's superficial purpose or it's completely unrelated and it, it doesn't make sense and, and also isn't grounded in working with nonprofits that really understand the impact. So I think it's, it's around focus and, and passion and then what really makes sense for you. Um, and then I think agility is important, but um, that's probably because of where I spend 24-7 being agile and finding interesting ways to spend money, little bits of money in comparison to our competitors, that is. Um, 
but I think it is the the passion and purpose side because what I have conversations with really big companies and they're like, well, it's easy for you to talk about purpose. You're Tom's. That's the way you started. But I think there are also a number of ways now, um, there are a number of companies that you can actually connect with that bring purpose into your business that are functional based. So um, media um, buying, as an example, we work with a company called Goodloop. It's a one-for-one -one company. It's whitelisted media buying, totally legit, amazing results. But if I spend my media budget there, that has more impact. Um, the platform we used for this evening's event called Ticket Pass is an ethical um, ticketing um, platform. So there are other ways that companies can actually bring authentic purpose into their business without really overthinking it. So I think it's, it's kind of not being paralyzed by this the pressure of purpose, but actually looking at sort of more interesting, unexpected ways, the crazy ideas, which kind of these guys have referenced before. And I also think that businesses don't just need to learn from social enterprise, they need to learn about social enterprise. <laughs> I think there is a common kind of misinterpretation or misconception that social enterprises in the kind of goods they um, create or the services they provide are lower quality than mm. the private sector alternative. Um, and this is a real big yeah, barrier to social enterprise, social enterprises providing these goods and services to these uh, businesses. Um, and, you know, in, in some senses, we kind of fall into the trap ourselves. I think many social enterprises, when they're selling to businesses, lead with, oh, well, we're supporting vulnerable people doing X, Y, or Z, rather than leaving with the key value proposition um, for the business that, you know, we are the best service provider for whatever it is. So in my organization's case... Um, our market insight is that 76% of people don't get their phone repaired in six months or at all because it's too inconvenient. So what we do is we bring repair clinics to big workplaces across London. Mm. We do the US Embassy and the Ministry of Justice and Barclays and, and others. And when we go in uh, and pitch to those organisations, we say that we are the most convenient phone repair service that any of your employees will be able to access. And as a result, when you look at um, the stats that we collect from our customers, only one in four customers choose us for altruistic purposes. Only one in four customers choose us because we're a social enterprise. Three in four choose us either because we've got good prices or because we're the most convenient um, service on the market. So I think we need to do more to educate businesses um, about what they can get from social enterprises. And that starts... Uh, we're telling them about how great the quality of service provision can be. With that, with that point, I wonder, maybe from your point of view, is workforce development is is one of the biggest sort of forms of social enterprise. So uh, helping people who might not have the education or, or might not have the resources or facilities to to get into employment. Uh, so, do you basically mean there's a, that maybe there's like an image problem with that form of social enterprise in that people uh, see that as a negative? Because they think that if, if you're working with those people, that the, the, the product they're going to get or the um, service they're going to get isn't going to be the same as a, an, another business. Yeah, I think, unfortunately, that, that's the case. Um, and many people ask us, just talking very anecdotally, about the quality of our service in a way that I know they would not ask about the quality of mm. Apple's service. Um, and I was um, speaking with... Um, uh, James Timpson, who's the CEO of the Timpson chain that, you know, cut keys and repair shoes. And one in 10 of their uh, employees are ex-offenders. 
Um, and they get, or they have got quite a lot of stick about, you know, from potential customers about the fact that they employ people who have done terrible things in, in inverted commas. Um, and I really like the Timpson approach, which is, well, we provide a super high quality service. And if you don't like it from us, then like go elsewhere. We don't want your custom. Um, and that's kind of our philosophy, really. We know we're confident um, in uh, the value of our service. Um, and if you get the service with us, you will you know, be the first person to realize that. Mm. I think it's an interesting um, thing what you said though, Josh, about leading with actually the, the level of the service rather than relying on the kind of buzzword of all of the all of the good and the impact that you're doing. And actually, I do think that we've definitely seen this shift in businesses looking for purpose so that they've got something to talk about. Whereas, like you said, Lisa, if it can actually be ingrained, ingrained in DNA and come from something that you're almost already doing and looking for ways to really bring it in into the foundations of what you're doing, even if you have got to work that way because you didn't start with a purpose. There was a, a question I was asked a few months ago, does purpose drive profits? Um, and if you're a big company that already exists on good revenue, does it have to? Um, sometimes just creating positive change should be the intention. Um, but what I found interesting when I first, I've been with Tom's for almost three years, and what I found interesting is saying that we were a for-profit, well, that we are a for-profit company that's grounded in purpose, almost seemed to be like a dirty remark. How can you be for-profit and then for purpose? Mm. You know, why the hell not? So I think it's, it's quite interesting how there's been that, I mean, there's definitely been, I'd say even in those three years, there's been a massive shift because purpose is a bingo word now. Um, but I think it, it's just interesting that there was that perception that you can't be. And I would, on, I think there's even been a part, and maybe it comes from the anxiety of you have a crazy idea and you're doing it differently to other. I still think there's maybe a level of self-deprecation um, self that comes out that you almost come at it from a back foot. I actually saw that a little bit when I started at Tom's. It's like, no, we, you need to go in with confidence, there's no reason that we should feel like we're on the back foot just because we show up a little bit differently. Um, so I think, and I don't know if it's because it's a kind of a very emotional space. So it's kind of, you, you look at it in maybe more soft skills where you've kind of, I have no qualms being really badass at business if it means that it's creating more impact. I think that's true as well, actually. You, have to be, you, do, you should be really confident in your, in your proposition. It's hard to. I think the 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 point is actually that you stand for something, and if you stand for something, sometimes that can mean mean that people don't like you because you have a you have a, a firm opinion, mm. you have a reason to be, um, and some, it's not easy sometimes to occupy a position where somebody looks at you and say, well, I know that you don't like this, and therefore. Um, you're going to be in opposition to whatever it is that, that I stand for, which is going mm. to be different than you. But there is a bit of a paradox, I think, for on, particularly on that profit purpose things, because sometimes some of the things companies have to do to have a real system level impact in the world may actually reduce or decrease profits that they're having. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, when it becomes more about and something I really like that Patagonia are doing and, uh, and Tom's now leading the way as well, becoming a B corporation. And then, you, you, then it's not about the sexy Instagrammable side of social business, but it's about really nitty gritty, dirty detail stuff about supply chains, about employee benefits, employee rights, shareholder dividends, etc., which 
sometimes isn't going to make you more of a of, of a profit. So it's 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 an it's a tricky one. That's a really interesting point because so literally last week or or this week I'm not sure some brands including Patagonia took out a full page ad again in the New York Times, and they were calling out 180 of the biggest businesses to say put your money where your mouth is. We're B Corp certified. The Business Roundtable in America, which is the lobby group, they've, they've changed the definition of purpose of business to, to move um, from just profit to, as you said, um, supporting their stakeholders and supporting their customers and their standing by their ethics. And, and so literally last week, Patagonia, as, as well as some of the brands, took out this full page ad saying, big businesses, Apple, um, Amazon, we want you to, we can make a profit by doing this, by making good in the world. Uh, why can't you? We have a question over here. We've got loads of questions. Great. Yep. yep. Ripple effect is happening. <laughs> um, I was interested in what you were saying earlier about collective impact um, and sort of social enterprises with a similar or maybe overlapping missions kind of working together. Um, and obviously one of the criteria for collective impact being um, achievable is having a backbone organisation that's coordinating the efforts of the individual social enterprises. And I was just wondering if through Ashoka you've um, sort of seen or been around any really successful examples of that and how they went about coordinating all of the different social enterprises. Wow, great question. <laughs> Good um, so getting super technical there. So yeah, and I'm, I'm for, for people who don't know, this collective impact is, is uh, an approach developed in the US but becoming more and more popular around the world, which is uh, around multi-sector stakeholders collaborating, usually locally, on a specific social issue like end homelessness in... North Los Angeles, etc., which is such a complex issue. It needs government interventions. It needs, you know, welfare state organisations. It needs businesses, etc. So, like you say, it needs some organisation to manage all of that. And I think this is a very new kind of organisation. There's a studies of ecosystems show that the really healthier ones have this kind of hub organization in the in the center which draws all those connections and uh, facilitates that collaboration um i think there's a couple i can name f success etc in the, in in the us but it's it's all about it's, it's very difficult first of all to fund this kind of in, uh, organization and to find that expertise on how to bring these diverse stakeholders together um so I think it's, it's very much a developing field and one we need to understand and, and, and support better. The, the Harlem Children's Zone in uh, New York is probably the textbook example or certainly my textbook example of um, a collective impact um, initiative. You know, working with and coordinating, mustering the resources of loads of organisations where young people... Um, from cradle to adulthood have touch points and trying to align them towards a very similar goal. Um, there's a UK version that's set up a few years ago called West London Zone um, and they're based in West London um, <laughs> but in the like Queen's Park um, area and I think they touch on like Shepherd's Bush as well 
um, which is one of the most deprived um, wards in the whole country. Um, and they've done a very similar thing. They found it very difficult to get funding in the first place. I think Morgan Stanley um, uh, gave them a bit of money to just try something out. And now they're absolutely thriving. So if you're looking for a UK example, and I know they're really big on sharing their model um, and showing people more about what they do, I'd recommend getting in touch with them. Does that answer your question? Yes. Yes, great. <laughs> we had another question, I think, behind. Just behind. Maybe. Yeah. Hi. Um, I wondered if each of your relevant businesses had any way of measuring any of the impact you've actually had just from an inspirational perspective for any aspiring social entrepreneurs. We start with Alex. Um, <laughs> there's, there's actually a very simple way that I can answer that. Um, from an inspirational perspective, because we don't measure uh, the impact in terms of any, any metrics, really, because we give, we give the money away to the NGOs and we ask for some feedback back. Um, some of the inspiration that you get from it is when they're actually successful in the campaign that they're doing. Uh, like, for example, there's a, a small team of three guys that were campaigning against the dam that was going to go on the River Conway in uh, Betty Sequoid. Um, they're kayakers. Um, they didn't chain themselves to any bulldozers or anything like that, which they were really worried about doing. Um, but they successfully stopped uh, the dam uh, by campaigning through petitioning, by starting up their own group themselves. Uh, they've not just done it on one, on one dam, they've done it four times. Um, and they've inspired groups in other parts of the country to take up the, the same kind of fight. So actually that, for me, is a proof that small groups of committed people really can make a difference. And that's amazing as well, you know, I think sometimes it can be so crippling uh, as an individual or a, a small collective of people who feel passionate about something. But that is real proof that you're, you're not too small to make a big impact never. at all. Never, yeah. never. Just one uh, inspirational story from, from our network I really like recently. So we, we ask our social entrepreneurs to measure their impact based on the system changes they've had. So what policies have they changed? What new flows in supply chains have they changed, etc.? And sometimes this goes as far as to them making themselves obsolete or irrelevant anymore. And one, one time this happened uh, is in Mozambique, and it's a, a social entrepreneur who trains rats to detect landmines. And there's loads of unexploded landmines in, uh, in Mozambique from a, from a civil war. And these rats, very special kind of rat, very sociable. You can train them over a nine-month period. Uh, and they, they can detect the smell in the landmine. They wiggle their tail, and then they get a banana once they discover it. And then a team come in and remove the landmine, um, which is way more effective than their traditional metal detector route, etc. And... A few months ago, Mozambique was declared landmine-free um, as, wow. wow. as a result of this and collective impact mm -hmm. initiatives with lots of other organizations. And a nice of, uh, example of a social entrepreneur having an ultimate system-changing goal and then achieving that and not needing to, to exist anymore. Mm. And then what, what do they just move on to the next social enterprise? Well, they're, they're, uh, these, they do more than yeah, their so, so these rats, for example, crazy creatures. They what do act, they do next? Yeah, they're, they're, they are now they redundant. They're, they're, don't worry, else. they're not out of work. They are. Uh, uh, they're now on to. They're detecting. now on practice. <laughs> <laughs> they're now on detecting tuberculosis 
even. So they can, they can check loads of samples at a <clears throat> fast rate. Uh, wow. no, if you want inspiration, check out a lot of the stories through Ashoka. I mean, it's, it's wildly inspiring. But I think from an impact point of view, we sometimes struggle with that, to be honest. Um, we can talk about the fact that we've given away, with the help of our consumers, 94 million pairs of shoes. Um, and we've um, been able to restore sight for over 700,000 people. We've given over 700,000 weeks of water away. But when you talk about in that, the numbers are really big. What consumers really want to see is um, what have those shoes done for the children that have received the shoes. Um, and we probably haven't been as um, eloquent in how we've put across our um, results in the fact of which children does it actually support to make sure that they can go to school. Um, the mental well-being of children to be able to show up at school um, with, with shoes. And we're talking about areas where they don't have shoes. No, they are not retailers that we're crippling because we're giving away shoes. These people don't have money for this kind of stuff. But it's, it's well-being, it's education, it's, it's mental health. Um, sight is often easier to kind of imagine because we can all imagine what life would be like if we couldn't see what we were doing. So whether you're, um, you're a child or a grown-up, you can kind of imagine the, the impact that that would have. But these impacts are also quite difficult to measure because they're lifelong, um, especially the site um, aspect. Um, and then what we're doing now, we've evolved and we also do impact investments on specific issue areas that are relevant and um, supported by our consumers in our different markets. Um, so things like homelessness or um, gender equity, but then we work. We find nonprofits, so that's how we started working with Ashoka. We find nonprofits that support a specific thing, and then we fund a very specific project that has a specific outcome. Now, the ultimate outcome is still who knows what amazing things the social impact entrepreneurs that we've worked with will go on to do. But that's their impact. That's not ours. But the initial impact is there. Um, and the inspiration for us is actually the nonprofits we get to engage with. There's one that kind of really moved me called Helen Bamber here in the UK, mm -hmm. and they work with the rehabilitation of migrants and refugees that basically slip through the cracks of government. These are the people that are so broken, no one thinks they can fix them. Um, and Helen Bamber have been around from um, years and years ago. I think they're 65 years old. I can't remember, roughly. Um, but they really do a full holistic rehabilitation of people just to get them back into society. And when you hear about their work, and we able we funded 33 women through um, their program, which runs for like over a year. But the ultimate goal is to get them back into society. So it's kind of how do you truly measure the impact? There's kind of the initial impact, but long-term wise, um, and we don't want to take credit for that because that's someone else's hustle that they, they really making work, we can just kind of facilitate it to a degree. So I think in all transparency, we find defining our impacts quite difficult and kind of a little bit of a point of anxiety. But then perhaps that comes down to the ego part that you mentioned at the beginning and actually redefining what success looks like and, and the need to quantify impact, get sort of the, the eye out of the way in order to enable the greatest potential impact. Yeah, and it's probably a little bit of PTSD because people are like, are you really doing what you say you're doing? <laughs> what the hell does a pair of shoes do? Um, whereas you, you, we had to get better at quantifying what that actually meant because I don't think years ago we were doing a very good job 
at um, articulating that. Um, so again, learning and not being kind of afraid to say, well, yeah, we know we probably haven't been nailing it up until now, but we, we're certainly working on improving. Yeah. And Josh, how do you, yeah, how do you measure impact? So in, in a few ways, I mean, we've worked with over 200 um, young ex-offenders or young people at risk of offending in London. Um, three quarters of those um, transitioned into employment education or training uh, within six months of completing our program, mm. um, and seven in ten uh, did not reoffend within that same period. Um, and just to give a bit of perspective, um, depends which figures you look at, but around two in three people who come out of prison normally reoffend within one year. Um, so we're really proud um, of how that's looking. More recently, we've started looking at our environmental impact because it came to our attention that um, the, in, in buying a brand new phone, um, the costs of shipping and manufacture, etc., um, result in between 20 and 40 kilograms of carbon being emitted uh, into the atmosphere. Um, and we've worked out that um, around we've saved through people getting their phones repaired rather than replacing them with, with new ones. Um, we've saved um, the atmosphere um, over 50 tonnes of, of carbon from being emitted, yeah. uh, which is really mm. exciting. Um, but in terms of um, a story, I think my, my favourite, <laughs> there are so many, so many uh, exciting stories, but one of them, um, there was one young person, it's a story held by many, but one young person in particular who, um, when we first started working with him, would talk about how he felt backed into Crimes Corner and would deal drugs or steal bikes and use the cash he made to secretly put into mum's handbag week after week to you know, help put food on the table, basically. He felt like he had to be um, the breadwinner. Um, and uh, we uh, employed him as part of our employability program and then he transitioned out of that into regular employment uh, in the wider world. Um, and with his first paycheck, um, he got to take his mum uh, and his little brothers and sisters to Nando's. Um, and he texted me to say, oh, my God, I've taken them to Nando. This is so exciting. And uh, his mum um, texted me afterwards and says, oh, Josh, it was an absolute disaster. Like he, he picked up the bill and he bought loads of food and was sick when he got home. <laughs> But that is impact, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's really nice to you know see uh, and hear about stories like like that, where you know he was really ashamed of the way he was supporting his family before. To being able to do that out and proud um, is uh, really exciting. And yeah. you know we've talked about like some of the real challenges of social entrepreneurship and social change making more generally. And I think. A key thing that people like us have in our, our work uh, is being able to be driven um, by these stories and know that the kind of work that we're doing or contributing to um, is going to help change somebody's life. Um, so if you've got to get up early one morning or you know, you've got to get on a sweaty tube or you've got to pull a bunch of all-nighters to get stuff done, like, it really is worth it. Let's take it back to the audience. Yeah, yeah. we have a question at the back. Hi there. Uh, so I, I think increasingly you're seeing a lot of the global workforce where you want to work somewhere where you feel that you have meaning and you have purpose in what you're doing, as you've just said. But how do you push that 
to corporate boards so that they recognize that? How do you shift the mindset at corporate boards so that they understand that their their workforce wants to be working somewhere that, that has meaning and they're contributing to something that's purposeful? Lisa? I mean, I often talk um, about, we, we often talk about the, the consumer's opportunity to make the right choice. Um, what I do reference is never underestimate your voice as an employee. Um, when we were talking about the fact that we had to evolve our giving model, um, and what I mean by that is going from shoe sites and water only to shoe sites and water and then specific impact grants, that though the areas or the buckets that we'd focus on from the impact grants point of view was actually driven through a vision crafted by employees. Um, the genesis of it was in reaction to um, Trump being elected as president. Our LA office literally melted down um, because it was basically the absolute antithesis of what we up until then quietly stood for as a brand. And there was this internal feeling of we have to actually have more of a voice about what we stand for and what's important to us in this world of inherent divisiveness. And it took a while um, and it was presented to the board and then later it kind of didn't get as much traction. And then unfortunately, um, I think most of you would know, the unfortunate events of Charlottesville happened and that just turned up the volume because you, if you are a brand with purpose um, and care at, at the core, you have to stand for something. Um, but I, I use that as an example from a company that is purpose-driven, but that the employees really push that. Um, I know it's more difficult um, in big corporations, but I, th- I think if ever it's easier now because it's, it's almost a hygiene fact. You can't just be these big corporations that just want more and more money. The consumer's not going to buy it anymore. Um, so employees shouldn't either. Um, and it's maybe a little bit easier within, within Tom's, but don't forget we're co-owned by a private equity company. Um, so it's not, we're not just all you know, warm and fluffy types um, in Tom's. Mm. Um, not that I think I ever come across warm and fluffy. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but the, we, we have other serious boards to present to on these matters as well. But I always encourage, especially the, the younger generation, um, use your, um, your voice um, as an employee. Because I actually, I firmly believe if, if you come together, not as one, come together as a group and really craft what you w- would like to achieve. It shouldn't, it shouldn't be just like flippant seat of the pants kind of stuff really put together a case, um, like any other business case, take it seriously. Um, and then you have to persist. It's not turnkey. It won't happen overnight. Um, you've basically got to lobby for it. So that's kind of how I would encourage it. So you were nodding, Alex. Yeah, I would uh, 100% agree with everything that you've just said. That, that, that is, um, there's nothing else to that to add from a company's perspective. And especially with Patagonia, then I, I thank... I've, in my past, I have worked for um, a company, a number of companies that were listed on stock exchanges, uh, which creates a completely different pressure. And I'm so thankful that I don't have that weekly pressure uh, to deal with. The pressure comes from much more from internally, wanting to uh, succeed for the reasons that um, I've mentioned before. I, I, I know why we need to make money. 
Um, but I'd also echo, echo Lisa's comment around never underestimate your own voice. But I think there's different ways to be able to do that. There's a poll done recently about uh, engagement within the workforce. And um, the poll came out with 14% of the workforce classed themselves as engaged with their job. 14%. And I, you know, I'd, I heard that and I thought, Jesus Christ, what does that mean for the rest? And the rest are either completely disengaged or not in the remotest, um, how did they phrase it? Not even disengaged. They're worse than that, if that was actually possible. <laughs> and then I thought about that and thought, well, okay then, so what, what does that mean? Well, that generally means that, what, what's that gonna be? 86% of people are in a role uh, for a company uh, that they either don't care about or they're not engaged with in any way. And there's plenty of companies that stand for something that do need talent, talented people that have got a drive and like so many things in life, then um, us four, we can't change boards at all, um, but you can. You can make a choice of where you go and work, why you want to be there in the first place. Um, if you enjoy being in there, but you think actually there's a problem with the way that their um, philanthropic funds are going, actually do exactly what Lisa says, stand up and say that we could be doing a, a much better job of that. And then the other thing is that people really do forget is choose where you spend your money and choose where you spend your time for me this is something that's not spoken about enough at the moment is around uh, how much data we give away how much time we give away to our phones uh, to everything else and that for sure is going to be the next economy if it's not already the existing economy mm. and you you guys we all have a choice on who you spend your time with where you spend your time where you spend your money and who do you want to give that to and that is undoubtedly the clearest message you can send to any organisation because when they see the money going back, because they don't have all these things in place that you want as a customer, and I always think those words are important too. I'd hate to be thought of as a consumer. I have an active role within my society. I have an active role within my community. I have an active role within, within my job. Um, I choose where I spend my money, who I give my time to as much as possible. Sometimes it is a pain in the arse. Um, simple things like, taking a reusable water bottle around. I have to carry one of those around. A reusable coffee cup, I have to carry one of those around. Sometimes I will not, if I've forgotten it, which does happen, I won't have a coffee, even though I might desperately feel like I need one, because actually I'm not going to give them the money because they don't give me a choice, so I'm not, I'm not, going, to, I'm not going to contribute to it. You have an amazing opportunity to create an impact. So I think mm. we all should just exercise that a little bit more. Carefully, and I think jumping um, onto the, you know, what do we do about boards? I think we have to change them. Mm. Um, you know, boards are overwhelmingly male, pale, and stale in, <laughs> in, in every sector. In the yeah. charity sector as well, actually, ninety-five percent of charity trustees in the UK are white, um, despite the fact that one in five members of our population are from the black or minority ethnic community. Um, and for as long as we have, um, you know, decisions about, um, you know, companies and other organisations made by people who are wholly unrepresentative of our country, um, we will continue to see um, the problems that you've kind of outlined um, in your question. Um, and I think that pressure can be put on boards to change from a couple of different places. One is from the top, from government. Um, government has the power and has really worked, um, I think, to their, their credit in the UK um, to 
uh, work towards quotas for different groups on boards. I don't think they're quite enforced, or I don't think they're um, as strong as they could be. Um, but for you know, making sure that boards are fifty-fifty uh, gender split, for example, um, is one of the places to start. Uh, but pressure can also be put on those boards um, from the grassroots level and you know, from shareholders. And with many big companies in the UK, like we have the opportunity to buy shares in them and to attend their annual general meetings and to protest um, at what we don't like about them, whether it's their products, whether it's their working practices or whether it's something else. And there's a great organisation called the Craftivists Collective. Some of you might be familiar with it. In fact, uh, Sarah Corbett, who runs it, is an Ashoka fellow. Um, and one of the things that um, she and her movement do um, is work with uh, corporates. They often sew like, nice messages for them uh, on handkerchiefs, like for board members of Marks and Spencers, for example. And they've been credited um, with... Uh, you know, right, reducing the pay gaps between the lowest paid staff and the highest paid staff as a result of the kind of pressure and attention that they've been able to shine on the mm. issue. But then there are also great organisations, campaigning organisations like Share Action um, in the UK, which do um, kind of similar work or have similar goals, uh, but have slightly more traditional means, all of which um, are really effective. Just to, to build on that, I think it is the key question for the, the sector and the social good world uh, as, as a whole, because at the moment, social entrepreneurship, social change is being kind of shaped and led by Silicon Valley, male, stale, pale, I'm two out of those three. <laughs> <laughs> um, and there's a nice quote on that, like the you can't dismantle the master's house with the master's tools. And so if this Silicon Valley mindset and the system which has produced such environmental damage, such inequality, if the approaches to solving that is being shaped by the people who caused and are perpetuating those problems, then it's going to be a real struggle to actually mm. get shit done. Mm. One of the things I, I've picked up on, it's been said a few times, for social enterprise to have a big impact, we, like you say, uh, customers, people we can vote with our feet in terms of uh, what, the active choices we're making. But we've said a few times that we see big corporations sort of say they're now working with a purpose or working with a mission, but it might not be as authentic as if you, if you started with that mission. How do we actually work out what's an authentic mission or, or impact to, to spend our time focusing on? Honestly, I think the only way that you can answer that is um, two things. From a company's perspective, there's absolutely nothing that the company can do to persuade you. And it, it shouldn't be up to the company. It should be you, you as the customer that makes the choice. Mm. And if you want to invest the time, then there's that, there is the amazing tool that the internet can be. Mm. Uh, you can research it really quickly. And it's amazing how transparent it will, give, uh, will be once you dig down two to three levels. And then if in doubt, don't get your money out. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> don't do it. <laughs> Good. Don't do it. Don't I do think it. there's also, um, as much as it's a little bit of a antithesis of a, a belief we'd, we'd like to think is true. Um, purpose doesn't necessarily convert people into buying. Um, you still have to, and it goes to your point on being really proud of the, the service or whatever you deliver. Your, your product still has to be completely sound. And I think we shouldn't have this false sense of, oh, just because we do something good, everyone's going to love us. Tom's would be a significantly bigger business if that was true. Um, one thing that I've, I was 
kind of quite surprised about when I started working for Tom's is people generally don't actually give as much of a shit as you think they do in a broader stroke. If you really look at big sort of numbers. Um, but I think it's what Alex was saying, being transparent as a company so that for those people that actually do want to, to look into it and do want to make sure they're making the right choice, maybe making it accessible at different levels because you'll have some people that just want to know what your mission is and, you know, is there a, a top line number that they can kind of believe in? And then you have different click down levels of Patagonia, I think, have always done a really good job at kind of transparency and how they've articulated. At least that's kind of my personal um, point of view. So having the information accessible, but I mean, ultimately, it's a choice. Um, I think ultimately, also, it um, comes down to convenience because often making the right choice may mean you've got to go a little bit further. Doesn't necessarily mean you've got to spend more. I think that's that's changing now. I think um, because it's more. Um, it's proliferated so much. A lot of these things, it's the same as when mobile phones first came out. They were, in, you know, inaccessible to a bunch of people. Now everybody literally has a mobile phone. So I think it's it's becoming more accessible, but it's ultimately what you care about and how, how much effort you're willing to make. Great. Are there, we, we have 15 minutes left. Are there, what, have we got questions in the audience? Yep, we've got one back here. Uh, I guess this is a question for Alex mainly. How does such a big company like Patagonia choose which causes to support and how do they make that process fair? Uh, that's a good question. Um, in fact, that's a great question. Thank you for asking it. Um, the way that we do that is actually we put the choice with the, uh, with the organisations that want funding. So the clear thing for us is we want to make sure that an organisation is tackling uh, root causes of climate change. Um, we list them on our website. So we're transparent with anybody that's interested. Um, they apply, and then it comes down. And I think the interesting thing here is actually uh, it comes down to the process. And the process for me is one of the wonderful things about uh, Patagonia. So uh, everything in the UK and Ireland comes down to two people, uh, Lisa and Becky. Uh, Lisa and Becky get each of those individual submissions. Uh, they look through them against each of the criteria that we have. If they meet the criteria, they get put to another pile. If they don't, they get moved to one side. They then go through all of those ones. They look at them and say, okay, then uh, the, these are the ones that we'd like to support. They then, then get sent to our European head office, which is in Amsterdam. Uh, we have a grants council. And then each of the individuals, so Lisa, Becky, who are the um, Enviro coordinators for the country, we've got the same in different places in Europe. Uh, they have a really long conference call <laughs> and they debate each and every single um, grant application and then it's voted for and then those that get the most votes they're the ones that we win alongside the budget that we've got allocated so we'd like to say yes to everybody that gets through to that pile but we can't because then we narrow it down to say okay then we're going to give we only give a maximum of twelve thousand dollars each time we do it uh, usually the average is about six and we do that because we it's part of the proof that actually we believe small small organizations are the ones that make a big difference so purposely we keep it small, which is the harder thing to do, but actually it's the thing that we think is, the, is how it works right. Just to give a perspective on how we support individuals, although we're a non-profit, we still do also choose individuals to support. And the one kind of driving criteria we have is we're looking for people who are really actually married to solving that problem. 
relentlessly for the rest of their life and not in any way married to their own solution to that problem. And Josh is a nice example of that. So he's not obsessed with fixing smartphones. <laughs> I, I, I don't think. And, and, and that, that solution might, might change. Josh is obsessed with ending the perception of ex-offenders as, you know, negative in society, channeling their entrepreneurial skills. And he's going to find any way that he can for the rest of his life of doing that, whether it's through politics, whether it's through activism, whether it's through writing a book, whether it's through social enterprise. So we really want those driven people who prove that they're, they're, they're in it for the long run. And there was, a, there was, another, an, there hand, was another hand there? up I noticed. Yeah, right at the front. So I think we've spoken about, um, well, the topic of the discussion today is how can social entrepreneurship change the world? And I just recently returned from a three-month project in Africa where I think um, 25% of the world's population will be African by 2050. How can we encourage or influence people in developing economies who might not have the same resources or privilege that we do to build that sort of social entrepreneurship angle into their business models? Uh, I'll give it, uh, <laughs> give it a go. <laughs> Unless you want it. No, you, you go first. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think it's an absolutely critical question. Uh, and I think that social entrepreneurship absolutely can't be the realm of the privileged. Uh, and I think one of the issues with the sector is people who haven't really lived the problems trying to solve them. So people in Western European capitals developing solutions for farmers in Africa without having really truly experienced that, that social issue. Um, and I think often the best innovations come from people who have really directly experienced it viscerally. And, and at Ashoka, most of our social entrepreneurs are from developing countries. So I, don't, I think it's... Maybe they don't know they're social entrepreneurs or they wouldn't uh, call themselves a social entrepreneur. They just get on with it and, and, and try and solve the problem. So I think it's, it's more about giving them an identity and the support that they need rather than necessarily creating more of them, if you, if you see what I mean. Yeah, because I think I'm South African and if I think the stories that I kind of grew up seeing in, in South Africa and other African countries, I always found being entrepreneurial was something that was quite natural to people from the, the continent. So I think where, um, and I, this is just my personal point, like I'm just thinking out loud, where I, I think I've seen the most benefits is where they've been microcredit funding so that people kind of, it just gives them a little bit of a, a nudge. Um, if you look at kind of the, the world stats on, on poverty, um, there's a really great book called Factfulness. Um, and there are four levels. But the difference, the jump from the lowest level of poverty to the next one is, isn't, it's not as significant from a money point of view. So that kind of microfunding, just to help people um, be a little bit more empowered, they've got the ideas, the tenacity, all these sort of things. Um, I don't really know how we, how we get there. Um, maybe that's sort of a, another opportunity on, on how you look at um, and I don't even know if I want to call it social entrepreneurship, but just empowering the smaller smaller businesses. Um, a change maker we worked with in earlier this year, Sara Nuru, 
She's um, Ethiopian um, heritage, but born and raised in Germany. Um, and she has a, co a coffee company called Nuru Coffee that she runs with her sister. And they have a one-for-one -one model, and they provide microcredits to women in Ethiopia to run their businesses. And I think they've seen really great stories. So it's not to kind of really go and tell them how it's done. It's just to kind of give them a little bit of a, a helping hand um, from that point of view. I guess we should probably head to our final question. Can social entrepreneurship really change the world? And how? And how? <laughs> For me, I would say yes, it can, but not alone. Mm. Um, and it only can in collaboration with lots of other approaches with activist citizens with government models with big businesses incorporating their learnings so yeah it, it it has got huge huge untapped potential but it shouldn't be seen as a a standalone fix we're we're all in this together um, and uh, that's the only way we're going to get out of the very difficult situation we're in as a planet right now Nick stole my answer. Um, <laughs> I actually do. I do agree with that. And it's, a, um, uh, it's an African proverb. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Um, and I think there's... I almost feel like governments are getting let off the hook because it's like, oh, no, social entrepreneurs and, you know, purpose-led businesses are going to solve all the problems. I mean, that's impossible. Systemic change requires everybody to be involved. So I think, can we be applying positive pressure on people around us to come together collectively to solve kind of the, the bigger ills in the world right now? Absolutely. I think we should almost be rebellious um, in kind of how we approach that and, and try and encourage other people to do it. Um, I think social entrepreneurship can contribute to saving the world, but I think it's, it's going to take collective action for sure. Yeah, for me, social entrepreneurship, you know, the act of harnessing a market and investing that cash into positive social impact um, is a solution, a workaround to an economic system that is just failing. You know, I'm not a massive anti-capitalist, um, but were we to have uh, a fairer economic system, uh, I don't think there would be a need for social entrepreneurship. Um, it's a, a symptom of, I think, a, a bigger problem. Um, I, I would echo what's already been said, especially when it comes to government. Um, government can play an extraordinary role in um, enabling people to do amazing things, whether social entrepreneurial things or activist-based things or other stuff in their communities. Um, and I think that politics, for all the terrible people that are involved in it, there are some fantastic people and there is some great progress that's been made. And I'm convinced that um, politics is the key way to change the economy, um, which I hope would preclude the need for social enterprises in the future. Excellent. Alex? Um, I would echo absolutely everything that everybody else has said <laughs> without being a, the easiest a, a, job. I've got the easiest yeah. job. I guess also you're also kind of lining up, so I find, I'm trying to think of a way to be able to end it, almost provide the last bit. And I was thinking um, the kind of the key bit is also about politics because actually 
Um, I think that is the key thing. You should never underestimate uh, the opportunity that we have in order to be able to create those change uh, by being active and taking part and not thinking um, like with Brexit. God, do you know what? It's, there's no point voting for anything because I, my vote doesn't count. Absolutely not true. It does count. The only way you create change is by standing up and campaigning for those things you care for and voting for things that you either want to buy or the government that you want in power. Never forget the opportunity to vote is something so precious you should, every, every single one of us should do it. What a way to end. Excellent sentiment to end on. Thank you so much to our panel uh, for being here. That was, that was yeah, really great. Round fantastic. of applause for our panel. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to that episode of the Camry Does Ask podcast. We really hope you enjoyed the conversation. We really did when we were there in the room and listening back to it was even better. If you want to come to future events, we have three more coming up this year. So you can find information about those on our website, camrydoesask.co. We really do want to invite as many people down as possible because the more people in the room, the more different opinions there, the better. And of course, if you want to get involved in the conversation but can't make the events, you can find us on social media at Can We Just Ask. We're on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and we can't wait to talk to you there. See you next time.